you, team. Well, morning, everybody. Um, today we are coming towards the end of our series on the, the 12 Apostles, and we're coming today to one of the more obscure, in fact, probably one of the, the most obscure of the 12. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include his name towards the end of their lists of the 12. He's also listed in the first chapter of Acts as one of those who was gathered uh, in prayer in Jerusalem, waiting with uh, the brothers of Jesus and the women as they waited after Jesus' ascension for the coming of the Holy Spirit. You won't find Simon's name in the Gospel of John, uh, nor will you find any mention of him anywhere in the Bible outside these lists of the names of the 12 disciples. So as a result, this is what we know about him. Uh, of his place of birth, we know nothing. Of his mother and father, nothing. Whether or not he had any siblings, we don't know. Uh, we don't know if he was married or not. We don't know what sort of education level he reached. We don't know what his occupation was, uh, nor do we know where he lived. And there is nothing recorded about his calling to become one of the 12. Neither are any words, not a single word that he spoke, recorded anywhere in the Bible. So, as you can imagine, all of this has the making for a great message this morning. But we can only work with what we know. And when we look at the, the record of Simon, uh, the, the words of Shakespeare came to my mind in Romeo and Juliet when he asked the question, what's in a name? And I'm hoping that the answer to that question is a lot because that's all we've got to work with this morning. All we know of this particular disciple is his name and the nickname or the epithet that uh, went alongside of his name. Now, uh, uh, according to a lady named Margaret Williams, who wrote Palestinian Jewish personal names in Acts, which I'm sure you've all read and thoroughly studied, according to her, um, Simon was by far the most common name for males in first century Palestine. And I guess in respect to naming their children, first century Palestinians were not much different to us today. Children were often named after an ancestor or after someone famous or after someone who was greatly admired. And we see this in our own society. Um, names like George and Charlotte, which had all but died out, suddenly became hugely popular again after the royal family decided to start using those names. And in Jewish history, in terms of famous or greatly admired people, you couldn't go much past the priest Mattathias and his sons and his grandsons who rallied the Jews and united the Jews to lead them in a revolt, uh, or series of revolts, against the horrors of the reign of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, in what would become known as the Maccabean War, Maccabean Wars. 
this family reached heroic status in Jewish history. And as a result, there are a lot of Judases and Johns and Simons amongst the first century people of Palestine. And we see that reflected even in the list of our 12 disciples, where there are two Judases, two Simons, and a John. There are, in fact, nine Simons in the New Testament. I wonder how many of you might, are able to name the nine Simons that are in the New Testament. It's a trivial question for you. There they are there. There is Simon Peter, who of course is the best known of all the Simons, uh, one of the leaders of the disciples. There's Simon the brother of Jesus, Simon the leper, Simon the Pharisee, Simon of Cyrene, who was called upon to carry the cross of Jesus, Simon the tanner, Simon Iscariot, that's not a mistake, he was the father of Judas Iscariot, and Simon Magus, who was Simon the sorcerer course as well as our Simon for this morning, Simon the Zealot. And when you take all of those nine and consider also that there are four Simeons, which is a variation on that name, it all leads to a lot of potential for confusion. Someone once told us that uh, they were confident that what was recorded in the Bible had to be the truth because they reasoned if it had been made up, everyone would have a unique name, like they do in a fictional novel or in a fictional movie that you might watch. There wouldn't be duplicates, and there certainly wouldn't be the plethora of Simons and Judases and Jameses and Marys and Johns that we see in our New Testaments. The priest Mattathias that I mentioned earlier, who's, who together with his sons and grandsons led the Jews in that revolt that became known as the uh, Maccabean Wars, one of his sons was named Simon. And Simon was much respected amongst the Jews. There is a poem that is written about him, which is recorded for us in one of the extra biblical records in the book of 1 Maccabees. And I've put a few excerpts from that poem up on the screen there, just to show you what respect the people had for Simon. Judea had peace throughout Simon's lifetime. Simon wanted only good things for his nation. His rule and reputation pleased the people throughout his lifetime. Simon brought peace to his country and the people of Israel were extremely happy. Simon supported all the poor people in his nation. He studied Moses' teachings. Simon made the holy place a place of splendor. So it is hardly surprising that Simon became such a popular name. Who wouldn't want to name their son after such a person? Several thousand years on, though, this creates complications for us because of the great number of Simons that were around at the time. And they are often confused in the historical records. Hippolytus confuses Simon the Zealot with Simon, son of Alphaeus, who's not recorded in the Bible, 
but who's believed to be the brother of the disciple who was James, son of Alphaeus. Many Eastern texts and other texts seem to merge the records of Simon the Zealot with those of Simon, the brother of Jesus. So we have to proceed with caution as we work our way through um, these historical records. So his name was Simon and the only other thing we know about him is that nickname or that epithet, the Zealot. Now, that word comes from the Greek, zelotes, which Luke used in writing his gospel and in writing the record of Acts to distinguish this particular Simon from the other one, who was also a disciple, Simon Peter. But that's not the word that Matthew and Mark used in their gospels after this particular Simon's name. They used the word kenaneos. And from that, several of the translations, namely the, the King James and the RSV and the newer versions of those, have taken that to mean that Simon was a Canaanite or a Canaanian. But kenaneos is believed to be a transliteration from the Aramaic, quinanea, and that means zealous one. So I don't think that that particular word is telling us that he was from Cana. It's telling us exactly the same as what Luke was trying to tell us, that this man was a zealot or he was zealous. So that much is kind of relatively straightforward for us to work out about this man, Simon. But what exactly did Matthew, Mark and Luke mean in using this term, the zealot? Was he a zealot, the, a member of a particular political party known as the zealots? Or, or was he zealous? And does it really matter? Am I splitting hairs? If you today look up the definition of zealot, this is normally what you will find first. A person who is fanatical and uncompromising in their pursuit of religious, political or other ideals. And I think it is safe to say that we have plenty of those types of people all around the world still today. There are plenty of fanatical people uh, with fanatical emotions about the beliefs that they have, whether they be political or religious or otherwise. But there is usually a secondary definition there, and that's a historical definition. A member of an ancient Jewish sect that aimed at world Jewish theocracy and resisted the Romans until AD 70. Now, this second group was not just fanatical and uncompromising, like the first definition. This group was an ultra-nationalistic group. They were freedom fighters. They believed that only God could rule over the Jews and so they opposed Roman rule. They were militant, 
they were violent, and they believed that they were doing God's work by killing anyone who opposed their cause. They were also not afraid to die for their cause. And to understand what makes them tick, we need to understand a little bit more about the various mindsets among the Jews at the time. So I'm going to give you a, a very brief overview, beginning with the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were more the wealthy, aristocratic group. Uh, they interpreted scripture literally, or the Torah literally. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife or the supernatural, so they had no angels or demons for them. They controlled the temple. So there were priests amongst that group, and they controlled the temple. Now, they were willing to accommodate the Romans uh, if it was to their gain. And that often didn't carry favour with them amongst the people. Second group is the Pharisees. Now, this was a larger group. It had more popular support amongst the people. Uh, they had the scriptures, but they also accepted the authority of oral tradition. And so from that oral tradition came this plethora of rules um, that the Pharisees uh, used to enforce the law amongst the people. So the Pharisees aimed to help the people to live godly lives under this Roman rule. And they did that by ensuring that no one could make a mistake by having all these extra laws in place. They believed in the resurrection, the afterlife, the supernatural, and their area of control was the synagogues. And they strictly observed the law. The next group is the Essenes. And today we might think of this group as something like monks because they withdrew from society. They went out into the desert. Uh, they believed in the resurrection and the afterlife, but they wanted to live quiet and peaceful lives. So they withdrew out into the desert uh, where they lived together, um, a kind of ascetic lifestyle. They were celibate um, and they devoted themselves to the study of the law there. Final group is our zealot group. Now in terms of what they actually believed, most of what they believed was very similar to what the Pharisees believed. And so we might think of them as like a radical splinter group um, of the Pharisees, although they weren't from that Pharisee group. Um, they were extremists, they were politically motivated, they were radical nationalists, they were militant, but the key thing that set them apart from the other groups was their absolute hatred of Roman rule. They believed that only God could rule over the Jews and so they did not accept Roman rule at all and did everything they could to work against it. So in terms of the attitudes of each of these groups to Roman rule, the Sadducees were kind of willing to live under it and accommodate it where it benefited them the Pharisees were more about helping the people to live within it in a way that um, was godly. So they kind of were trying to separate from it. The Essenes just wanted to withdraw and live quietly our own way in the desert. And the Zealots were up for a fight. 
they wanted to fight against Roman rule. And among their number, they had a, a, a group that were known as the Dagger Men within these zealots. And the Dagger Men were what we would call today assassins. They got round with these big cloaks on and they carried these little curved daggers under their cloaks and they would sneak up behind a Roman soldier or a Roman political leader and they were expert at sliding that dagger in between the ribs in the back, piercing the heart, quickly withdrawing the dagger and slipping away into the crowd or into the night. It is often assumed by this nickname or epithet that Simon has, this zealot, that Simon was a member of this group. And when you read a lot of the popular literature, that tends to be the direction that it takes. However, outside of one single record in Josephus, there is very little to suggest that the zealots actually existed as an organised party at the time when Simon was a disciple. There is no evidence outside of Josephus of any official zealot party before the Jewish-Roman War of between AD 66 and 70. And that would make it impossible for Simon to be a zealot as we know that party. So, it's important that we take a look at this one record of Josephus and decide for ourselves um, whether or not it's a possibility that Simon could have been a formal zealot. So Josephus writes, of the fourth sect of the Jewish philosophy, Judas the Galilean was the author. These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They also do not value dying any kinds of death, nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relations and friends, nor can any such fear make them call any man Lord. And it was in Jesseus Florus's time that the nation began to grow mad with this distemper, who was our procurator, and who occasioned the Jews to go wild with it by the abuse of his authority and to make them revolt from the Romans. Now this Jesseus Florus, who was the procurator of Judea, he, was, he had that position between AD 64 and 66. That means he was Rome's representative under Nero to govern in that particular area. And the abuse of his authority that Josephus speaks about was when he sent troops into the temple to seize the silver uh, when tax revenues were low. And of course, that drew the ire and the anger of the Jews because he'd taken from the temple their silver. And so they began rioting. And in the uproar that followed, this Jesseus Florus sent troops into Jerusalem in AD 66, killed 3,600 citizens, and that particular action led to the first formal Jewish revolt of that time. 
Now the zealots had promoted the idea that only God could rule over the Jews. And the zealots also idealised that former time that I spoke about of the Maccabean Wars. Because at that time, the Jews were able to be gathered together and unified and they rose up against <coughs> Greek rule at the time and were able to, to overthrow. And so the zealots, in response to this, rose up and attacked and massacred the Romans in Jerusalem and attacked and killed Roman soldiers who were elsewhere throughout the provinces. And that set off a chain of events which eventually led to the destruction of their own city, the city of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70. Along the way, the zealots turned on some of their own fellow Jews. Anyone who was willing to compromise with Rome became an enemy of the zealots. Such was their zeal for their cause. They even attacked the Sadducees in the temple and they killed anyone who wanted to surrender or negotiate with Rome. And so many historians believe that the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple was made possible in part by the infighting that resulted among the Jews as a result of the actions of the zealots and their hatred of Rome. So this Jesius Florus that is mentioned here by Josephus, his time was around AD 66. And that time is way too late for Simon. There are many other historical records from that time that attest to the existence of this zealot party around 66 to 70. The only thing that might hint to its existence any earlier comes from the beginning of that record uh, where he speaks about this Judas the Galilean who was the author. But we have a record in the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 5 and verse 37, where Gamaliel is appealing to uh, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees as well, within that group, um, that there were many who rose up and they were crushed and they disappeared. And so he's saying that the apostles um, should be allowed to do their thing because if it's if it's of God, it will succeed, but if it's not of God, like all of these other people, what they're trying to do will not succeed, it will be crushed. That's what Gamaliel was saying. And one of the examples he uses for that is of this guy, Judas the Galilean. He was killed, uh, his revolt was crushed, and his followers were all scattered. Um, he, he was actually encouraging the Jews to revolt against a census at the time which was going to be linked to their taxation and he didn't believe that they should be paying taxes to another authority. But his revolt was crushed. That revolt happened in AD 6. So that would have been early enough for Simon. So the important question for us today with regard to Simon the Zealot is, were these zealots recognised 
as an actual group as early as AD 6 or was it not till 66 and beyond? Because if it was AD 6, then this record could mean that, yes, Judas the Galilean started that group and Simon could well have been a follower of it. But if it was 66, then what Josephus means here is more that this guy, Judas the Galilean, inspired it and maybe some of his philosophies um, took root some time later, some 60 years later, and that led to this growth in the group of the Zealots. And in that case, Simon could have been part of it. Now, unfortunately, the answer to that question is that we just don't know. No one knows and it's not possible to find out. Um, so whilst it is kind of fun to imagine what might have happened around the table of the disciples when a zealous hater of Rome sat down with a Roman tax collector, Matthew the disciple, someone who was actively working with Rome and making money out of working for Rome, you can imagine what would happen when they sat down together. Whilst it makes for a good story, imagining what might have happened, I'm not so sure that that is the truth of what happened. It might well have been, but given the lack of earlier historical records for the existence of this party, I kind of lean towards... Simon being a small z zealot. Someone who was zealous, but not necessarily a member of that party. I also find it a little bit hard to imagine that if he was a formal member of a party like the zealots, that not one of the gospel writers found anything that he did or anything that he said interesting or worthy enough to have actually written it down. So I think here it's, it's possible and probably likely that the use of the word zealot here is a more of a historical use, like what Paul, how Paul used the word of himself. Paul was zealous for the law and he quite freely admitted that he was zealous in that respect, so zealous that he was driven to persecute the church. Either way, whether he was a, a capital Z, zealot member of the party, or a small Z, zealous for Israel or zealous for the law, becoming a disciple would have been a massive learning curve for Simon. It would have been a complete change in his mindset and in the way that he thought about how the kingdom was going to come, about what the Messiah looked like, now, these zealots wanted someone who was going to go into battle for them to defeat Rome. And that's not who the Messiah was. He would have had to have had a change in mindset similar to the change in mindset that Paul underwent 
when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Everything changed for him in that moment. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now when you read that passage, as it was read to us by Jason earlier, that sounds to me quite zealous. There's a fair dose of zeal behind that expression. Not the fanatical, emotional kind of zeal that drove the zealots to murder or that drove the Apostle Paul to persecute the church. But it's the kind of zeal that should characterise all of us. The kind of zeal that should be part and parcel of being wholly and fully devoted to Christ. It's an expression of one's devotion to God. You know, zeal is not always a negative trait in the Bible. In fact, the prophet Isaiah describes Jesus himself as being cloaked in zeal. You know, he was surrounded by zeal. And his disciples, when they saw his actions in the temple, um, were reminded of the Old Testament scripture that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal is not always a negative trait. In fact, actually it's a command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength, Deuteronomy 6.5. That is zeal. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understandings. Again, that's zeal. And from Paul in Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. The Christian life is not a calling to be loosely connected to a church. It is not a calling to occasionally engage in a Sunday service or some other activity associated with the church. It is about a single-minded desire to walk with Jesus every day. It's about a single-minded desire to be devoted to doing his will each and every day and to becoming more and more like him each and every day. Simon may well have started out on his journey as one kind of zealot. Exactly what kind of zealot he was, we probably will never know. But when he met the Lord Jesus, everything 
changed for him. Everything else became nothing. It became worthless, rubbish. All of that passionate enthusiasm he had for the law or for Israel or for whatever other cause suddenly took its expression in his newfound devotion to Christ. Our Lord needs passionate followers. There's nothing wrong with zeal. We're commanded to be zealous. Simon became like all of the other disciples, well, with the exception of Judas Iscariot. All of them were zealous for Christ. They weren't loosely connected to Christ. They followed in his footsteps every day. They were fully committed to him. They wanted to see his kingdom come and they wanted to see his will done on earth and they were willing to play their part, whatever that may take. And for almost all of them, eventually that meant being martyred for their faith. I think all of us can do with that kind of zeal. A little bit more of that kind of zeal would completely transform churches in the Western world. The plethora of Simons that there were for this time make it very difficult to get an accurate picture of what happened to him after uh, Pentecost. But it seems that he took the gospel to the northern part of Africa and then on to ministry in Persia where eventually he was martyred for his faith. That's the story of Simon the Zealot. Uh, quite a lot in a name, I think, and quite a lot we can learn in terms of being zealous for the right reasons, being zealous for Christ and seeking to have that single-minded devotion and passion and to live it out every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, may your gospel be our highest joy. May your gospel be our deepest need. May it be our greatest passion. Father, may we, like Paul, count everything else as nothing compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus. May we love you, each of us, with all of our hearts. May it be our great desire to see your kingdom come here on this earth. And may it be our great privilege to partner with your Holy Spirit in his work to that end. Amen. Would you stand? Injo is going to lead us in There is One Gospel. Let us stand.